0: Guest. We have another guest from across the pond, as we like to say. So I would like to introduce you to Peter Taylor. Peter, we are going to start with a little bit of a lightning round, which I send a little uh, sort of outline, but I don't say about the lightning round. And sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. So when you hear the word fraud, what do you think of? Crime. Okay. Yeah. And uh,
1: you were going sorry, uh put you there with ethics. I think ethics would save the world.
0: I like that. That is actually kind of amazing. Like yeah, if we are
1: well, if everybody had ethics, we could just well, so many problems would go away.
0: Yeah, so do you think it's easier to teach fraud or to teach ethics?
1: <laughs> um I've never tried to teach ethics, Um, apart from obviously making sure that businesses that I work with or work for um, are doing the right thing. Um, I think that would depend on the people that you're trying to teach. So if you've got a business that's building and growing, you can build ethics in. If you've got a business that's unstable and unethical, then mm, you could be fighting a losing battle, could not you? Yeah. 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 But for fraud, 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 it's all about knowledge, isn't it? So you can always teach people knowledge, provided that they want to learn um, and provided that you're able to engage them in such a way that um, they want to actually get involved in, and take action as a result of it. So I think th- I do think they're different things because I think, uh, unlike a lot of fraud fighters, I find sometimes that we, we, we fraud fighters get a little bit carried away that everything's about fraud. Um, For me, fraud is like the tail on the dog. A business or an organisation is like the dog and we're the tail. You know, we shouldn't be wagging the organisation. Without the organisation, there's nothing for us to do. Um, You know, without the organisation selling, without the organisation having products, without having services, there is, you know, then there's no role for us as fraudsters uh so i always say we like the tail that we're not wagging the dog uh but the other thing is if you take a dog and chop its tail off um the dog gets very smelly
0: <laughs> that's so funny my son lived with a guy who had a dog that had the you know it was a hunting dog so it locked the tail yeah. off and it bothered yeah. my son so much <laughs> yeah
1: like, yeah
0: it looks. i don't pain- like
1: anything like that i don't like anything like that yeah that's- um, we, we have a yeah. place called the Isle of Man where cats, allegedly for years, have had no tails. But we now believe that the Manx people used to chop the tails off to off their cats to attract the tourists. I and mean, it's not a natural phenomenon, but I, I've never actually bothered fact-checking it. It's um, I tend to stick with fact-checking when I'm making money, you know, when I'm being paid to do it, so...
0: Yeah. So, Peter, tell the audience sort of your career path, where you are now. And I'm going to tell you guys, Peter and I are kind of in the, uh, like, grey hair zone. So, you know, your story is going to be kind of Eiffel Tower-like. But tell the audience how you got to where you are.
1: Okay. Um, if I cut out a little bit of what you would normally get is, obviously the start of my career was in the CID. Um, I was a, a CID officer, criminal investigation department, police officer, um, investigating crime. Um, I spotted that there was a lot of insurance fraud going on with motor vehicles. In the UK, you have to insure your vehicle. It's quite expensive. But when you get a cost of living crisis, then people will resort to having the car stolen to order. Yeah, so I spotted a lot of that was happening in, in the late 80s, early 90s, and the police just didn't have the resources and, and you know, didn't have the resources to deal with it. Um, insurers, I don't think, realised how bad it was. So I set up an investigation business with my partner, a guy called David Moore. So we were called Terramore Investigations, and we were the first specialist insurance investigation business in the UK. So the bank manager, uh, my friends, my family, and insurers told us that there was no market for us, uh, but we did it anyway. And then within 18 months, we were employing about 22 people. Um, And then three years later, we had something like 60 field investigators um, and a full office providing backup, computer systems and everything else. So we became the model that everybody else adopted in the UK. And the model we, which we put in place was a mix of insurance claims staff and former police officers trained in insurance. Uh, that model still runs today. And also doing things like desktop investigation, forensic analysis and everything else. We, we were actually the first to do it. so So that was how I got into just doing fraud as opposed to doing crime. When I say doing, doing something about it. Um, And then the business was very successful and um, a loss adjusting company, Sedgwick, which was then was, it was called Cunningham Lindsay UK. It's now Sedgwick, largest loss adjusting company in the world. They bought us as their motor investigations department, uh, which was great for us because we were only sort of, fairly young, uh, made an offer we couldn't refuse, and um, made a lot of money very, very quickly, while we were still young enough to enjoy it. Uh, But I then got interested in other types of fraud, and um, eventually I became head of investigations and director of fraud management for the largest loss-adjusting company in the world. Uh, Spent a few years with another loss-adjusting company... And then 10 years ago, I set up my own consultancy business, um, wanted to go back to being on the front line and doing investigations, uh, providing training um, and doing consultancy for businesses. Uh, But also, um, you mentioned the gray hair. Most of us will have had a a point where we're bored with fraud. And uh, for me, I got really interested in cybercrime. So I did, um, my own research, completely different way to the way the academics research stuff. Um, I did it as an intelligence gathering exercise, just did it for my own personal development. And that ended up getting me into working for online retailers, uh, banks, technology companies, um, and a lot of other people as well. And it also proved to be, I wish it was smart enough to have done it completely by design. But if you think back to, say, 2017, 2018, and now um, in 2017, traditional fraud and cybercrime were, if you imagine two pie charts or then circles that merged a little bit, whereas now they're, 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 you know they nearly merged completely in that uh, they both rely on each other heavily. And a lot of people that are doing cybercrime are also doing traditional fraud and vice versa. So I looked quite smart with that. So uh, don't tell anybody, but I didn't actually do it on purpose. I just did it because I was curious. I'd also um, always been a nerd. So I built my first computer in 1992 and uh, I like the tech side as well. So so that's how I got here. That's how I became the fraud guy. doing social media and, and just trying to sort of share the knowledge um, with other fraud fighters, but also with the public as well.
0: So there's, like, so much there. Like, one off that all the guests that I've had in over the 120-plus episodes is our natural curiosity and then also wanting to share, like, yeah. the knowledge of it unlike maybe some other industries, but we're all nerds and we're all curious. And when you said that, you know, you didn't purposely set out, well, I certainly didn't purposely set out to do my career, but it evolved because I think there was a need.
1: Yeah, I think I am a little bit different to all the people in that I wanted to be a fraud investigator since I was seven.
0: Okay, you must have read a book or watched a TV show.
1: No, I got um, my birthday present on my seventh birthday was what's called a Secret Sam briefcase. So it was a child's toy that was a briefcase. And inside it was a plastic gun, uh, a camera, bullets. Um, I think, um, I don't know whether they, they came with the kit, but I had like a fingerprint fingerprinting kit and everything else. So... Um that probably started me more than anything else. I wanted to be like a secret agent or private detective. Um, and then the TV shows of that time, the UK ones, uh, we had some really good TV series like Man in the Suitcase, uh, The Avengers, uh, The Saint with Roger Moore. So I actually, at the age of seven or eight, wanted to be a private investigator. So when people good. say... So when people say, what did you actually want to be when you were seven? And other people put things like astronaut or jet fighter pilot. For me, you know, that that is what I wanted to do. The other one, though, is I am outraged when people cheat. Other people always have been. Um, It really annoys me. It makes me angry. Um, So so I think that's driven me throughout all my life before I became a police officer.
0: So who gave you the secret briefcase?
1: Uh, My mum and dad, yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm going to see if... Do you still have it?
1: No, no. Um, Okay. You can buy buy them um, off places like eBay, but they're really expensive. They're like about two or 400... Between two and 400 pounds, which is similar to... Probably the same in dollars or similar in dollars. Yeah, they're um, much sought after.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna try and get a picture and put that in for the LinkedIn post because that is just the cutest thing ever, I think. Like yeah. I'm trying to think of any gift my parents gave me that like motivated I mean, I read a lot of Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, but I never thought I'd yeah. do what I do. So yeah. that's yeah. that. what did your what did your mom and dad do for a living? Was there anything any crossover?
1: No, not not at all. My mom was very, very well educated. So by the time I was four years of age, I could read and write uh, my own name. I could do basic maths and stuff like that. So when I first went to primary school, which in the UK, you go... when At the time, you went at about four or five. So when I went to school for the first three years, there wasn't a lot to, for them to teach me. Um, so she should have been a teacher, but she never was. Um, and again, it was the age where... Um, not many women worked. She did some work later in her life. Uh, but, yeah, she she basically, she should have been a teacher, I think, if she hadn't married my dad. She probably would have gone, gone and done that. Um, my dad was ex-army, uh, so he was a royal engineer, um, part of the troops that invaded Germany at the end of the war. And he was assigned to work with uh, the American troops. Um, so... Um, he came back from uh, the war with the best teeth and hair in Manchester uh, because one of his buddies was an American dentist and the other one was an American barber. So uh, he came back looking very handsome and swish and slick. Um, so so he, had, so he had a good experience with that. But he, made, he actually worked for, and this one actually does relate to me psychologically, he did a few jobs, but he went to it for the post office. So he started off with the delivery office where the sorting office, and I think it'd be similar in America, you have little boxes where you put things, you know, where you put the letters uh, when you sorted them. So they can all be put together in a mail bag that, you know, that's one person's beat to go out and deliver. Um, and one thing that's been said about me several times is that when I look at something or look at a situation, Put it into boxes. I put it into order. I bring structure to everything uh, when I'm investigating. So, don't know whether I picked that up off him, but I did used to help him when he he later got promoted. He became a postmaster, um, and I used to help him when he was working out beats and things like that for the for the postman. I used to help him drawing little maps and colouring things in. So, I don't know whether I picked that up from him um, <laughs> doing that. Yeah.
0: Patterns are so incredibly important. I mean, yeah. and, 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 I mean, I've worked with people and they're like, how do you see that? And I'm like, well, there's a pattern here. Yeah. So, yeah. And you know the patterns from your experiences.
1: Yeah. I think the other thing as well, Kelly, if you're dealing with lots and lots of investigations, every single investigation has got the potential to be unique. And we as humans, we have good days, bad days. We get tired, so so for me, I mean, it must be. You know, I must have dealt with tens of thousands of actual investigations myself personally, or 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 assisting others. So having a structure for when you're not quite on form, you know, that you follow in your mind when you're analysing something, it's a good way of working. You know, it keeps the standards up, and also you can teach process. and you know, and, and structures to people, so that they can actually um, you know approach things in in a certain way. So, like an insurance investigator, if somebody's investigating insurance claims, a lot of them are shocked when they get trained off me when I tell them there's only four things for you to look at, and that is what are the circumstances of the claim. So that's the bit where somebody will lie, uh, make things up, um, get things wrong. Uh, what have they told the insurance company? So that's the underwriting information. There. So that's what they said about themselves, where they live, or it is that they're insuring. Then there's technical issues. So that is an insurance, you know, something that an insurance company um, might put in place. You know that you've got to have certain types of lots. Um, you know, you've got you've got to have um, um, an alarm system and everything else. So there's actually only sort of like three or four things that you actually need to look at because there isn't anything else that you can commit fraud on. So I've always I've always been about trying to simplify things. And, you know, I remember training one girl and she had, uh, we were going out to do an investigation and she had 47 questions, which I let her go through. Um, and then we sat back and went through it. Straight away, we cut our questions down to 14 by saying there's only these four areas that you need to look at, and it improved her abilities as, you know, her abilities um, to be an investigator, and she also found she got a lot quicker at interviewing and a lot better at sort of decision-making. So I'm always trying to simplify things. I think part of that is because I'm I'm a fairly simple man. So, you know, um, so I I always like to speak... um, Clearly, uh, we'll be able to tell people things in a way that they can understand. um, You know, fight against things like three letter acronyms, which we all use. You know, but I like to try and keep things simple um, so that people can understand them.
0: So, um, I, okay, so I, like I said, Peter was very organized. He provided a lot of responses to some of the questions. And some of these I want to really, you just answered your hidden talent is about simplifying. So like, yeah. you know, that I love that. And then, um, I like this. What is the best compliment you have ever received?
1: Yeah. Um, and that was girl who thanked me for being so easy to open up to, uh, and admit what she'd done to me. So it was what I, what I was actually, um, a very difficult interview, it's a disciplinary interview, two hundred and twenty thousand pounds worth of fraud. you know anything that can go wrong, you know may have gone wrong uh so again, I was really, really well prepared for it. I knew where the questions were going and everything else and so I interviewed her um she made the admissions um you know, she signed. Uh, statements and everything else Uh, so the job was sorted but I had two issues one was obviously proving the crime that she'd been committed that she committed but I also wanted to make sure there was no comeback on her employers so I'd even included with you know within the interview what do you think your employer should do well uh, they should sack me um, I've no right to stay there and everything else. So I got the first compliment was from her. that so she'd found it very easy to admit things to me. And the second compliment was when um, her employer was reading it, you know, reading the statements. Um, and she just looked at me and said, oh, good you are. when she saw this bit. So again, it, you know, uh, you mentioned there about, you know, me, me, me simplifying things. I also just try and make things as easy as possible, for anybody that works with me, you know, if I can put a little bit of extra effort in, and it makes their life easier, and then I finally get that back from people as well. Where it's a big thing in terms of um, getting buy-in from stakeholders, which is a battle, is the other battle that we fraud fighters play. Play those uh, fraud fighters play is um, battling stakeholders to get ourselves um, to get you know to get ourselves prioritized where we need to. So, as I say, making the stakeholder's life easier, making your boss's life easier.
0: So that's so interesting. I did an interview um, when I worked for a big corporation. And, um, you know, we're going along, we're going along. And all of a sudden, the guy looks at me and goes, so, like, I'm getting fired. And I was like, oh, yeah. You know, and actually, I don't make that decision. I that was never my decision to make. That was HR's yeah. in the business. Um, yeah. But like he set it up. He's like, so I, I'm I'm getting fired, and you know, so yeah, smooth that out. But then the other part was like, you know, going through them, and I do this in embezzlement cases. It's like, okay, this check, this check, this check. So it's yeah. very. You know, we don't have a dead body like a murder, but we do have yeah. a paper trail, and yeah. as simple as we can get that, it's it's really really important for the ultimately the client.
1: Yeah, I think that's one thing where the police struggle, isn't it? They like a crime scene, yeah. Um, but I think the where I try and educate the police now is that there's always a trail. When you commit fraud, there's something you've done at some time. And particularly, well, it's always been the case, there's a record somewhere of it or there's evidence of what you did. So, yeah, the the trail is always there. But it's knowing knowing where to look for it. Um, I think another one that's really important, and we are big on in the UK uh, with our investigator training for police and everybody else, it's actually assisting the witnesses and and the suspects to remember things accurately and provide detail back to you. I think that's really, really important. The science behind it was developed um, around sexual offences and serious crime in order to, you know, cognitive interviewing techniques, which you're probably familiar with, which is helping the, um, the victims or the witnesses to remember small details that can be really, really significant but it also works with suspects because say quite often when you're actually talking to a suspect at that point, you don't know whether they're a suspect a witness or just not involved. So, um, you know, the kind of techniques that you use to get somebody to speak to you um, and get somebody to open up to you, they're really important and something that I've, I've always been quite good at, to be honest with you, but I was taught very, very well. Um, the CID team that I was in, um, they were just brilliant. They, it was just a brilliant team to be in. And the detective sergeant that ran us was fantastically experienced, fantastically capable. Um, so had a really, really good start, you know. Um, and obviously I talked to it as well.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, so this leads me to, because you just said the CID team is yeah. – um, I ask because that just kind of leads me to like fraud and pop culture, and um, your sort of favorite fraud movie, which I was kind of surprised of yours. So tell us why you picked uh, Terminator Two or Demolition Man?
1: Uh, because when I'm watching movies, um, I want to relax, and I'm very, very big, particularly now, on avoiding busman's holidays. So, um, I don't know if you have the term in the US, busman's holiday means, um, basically it means somebody who drives a bus for 48 weeks a year and it's just holidays and he goes on a coach trip. So, he's on a bus again. Um, we try and avoid that in the UK that, that you know when to, you know that you separate your relaxation uh, from your working life. And I think it's really important for fraud investigators so, so, for example, um, when I first started off as a private investigator, I worked for the breweries, uh, you know, that run pubs and bars. And obviously, I learned all the techniques that are used for fraud by the bar staff, the landlords, and people like that. And then I realized every time I went into a bar, I was spotting all the fiddles, uh, you know, spotting all the ways that people were... I could see people committing fraud in front of me, but I wasn't getting paid to do that and I needed to switch off myself. So I, I, I try and switch off. So a lot of the things that I've never seen, The Tinder Swindler, you know, um, and all these, you know, things that are on Netflix, I watch very few. The only time I, I will watch them is if it is a friend of mine uh, that's, you know, featuring in the programme. Um, then I, I always watch it because, you know, I, I, w- I would like to think they'd do it if it was me. But I... um My great saviour that has kept me sane, because fraud can be dark, is um, I love football. Absolutely adore football. Um, So I've been a a football coach for kids' teams, and I also follow a very famous football team. So that's one way of relaxing. Uh, The other one, a lot of people are into music, and I love my music. But instead of following bands, I follow comedians. I love comedy. So, oh, okay. I love it. yeah, yeah. So, I'm really big into uh, particular comedians, particularly ones that can act. So, you know, uh, people that can do stand up were also very good in films and TV stuff. So, I enjoy that. I also think Stallone's a great comedian, by the way. Uh, it's not Stallone, sorry, Schwarzenegger. I think he's a great comedian. So, I enjoy his, his films. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't, I kind of like. Yeah, sometimes i don't mind i'll see something it'll make me curious but i like to separate when i'm working to when i'm relaxing and do things that have got nothing to do with fraud or i don't watch you know, to crime no no yeah. it's
0: just
1: yeah i was when, when I, I actually started before i became a fraud specialist when i was in in the police i stopped watching uh, police programmes. The only one, the only exception that I watched in the 80s was Hill Street Blues. Oh, yeah. Because you've got to watch Hill Street Blues. Uh, but I didn't watch any of the other police programmes because, you know, I have that at work. What was the other one I said besides, oh, Demolition Man? I just think it's one of the funniest films <laughs> of all time. But when, when when we were first watching it and when they made it, I don't think they realised they were actually prophesizing a future. You know, apart from the shelves, uh, you know, apart from the shelves in the bathroom, everything else is more or less happening, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. So um, uh, I followed you on LinkedIn for a long time. It took me a while to get you as a guest because of my lack of connection. Um, But you're one of the people, and you said this in a lot of your answers, you are really good about the network and your colleagues. And that's one of the things that I saw that stood out for you. And in your answers, you've also put about your network and how you continue to grow your network.
1: Yeah. It it was, um, I mean, I've always been interested in the network. Um, I love seeing other people be successful. And I've, Probably maybe in my 30s, I was a little bit ambitious and was sometimes jealous when somebody else did well instead of me. Lost that a long, long time ago. So I love to see people doing well. I love to see people getting recognised. So I think I'm naturally supportive and most people know that. Um, But the other one that was a really big help to me was because it came from a a traditional fraud background, when I started doing research with former fraudsters and former cyber criminals, quite a lot of the traditional networks don't like it. You know, they, they actually, you know, were saying to me, I would never speak to somebody like that. And I said, well, didn't you have a informants, you know, when you were in the police? You know, at the end of the day, how can you learn about the enemy if you don't speak to them, if you're not interested in them? But the big one on the cyber side is I didn't just want to talk to criminals. I wanted to understand cybersecurity better. And I found, um, I was really surprised because my age obviously goes against me, but the InfoSec community, um, you know, I, I haven't got any tattoos. My beard's not very long and I've got a full head of hair. And, uh, you know, I'm the wrong side of 60 now. Um, <laughs> but, the, but so So some of them wouldn't bother with me, which was fair enough. But the ones that did were absolutely fantastically helpful. Um, and without them, um, and without being able to speak to them, um, I wouldn't have been able to understand cybersecurity as well, you know, as well as as well as a believer do. Um so yeah, the InfoSec community were great. And I've got this really strange thing of um, you know, my with with LinkedIn i mainly concentrate on counter-fraud people or people who are in businesses or organisations that have got a counter-fraud function of some sort. Um, and then InfoSec and technology companies. So it's a little bit... The, I find that quite a lot of my network don't know other people in my network and I become surprised about it. So I think I've got a little bit of a of a different network. But yeah, they always help me. There, there isn't a day go goes by that I don't have somebody contact with me with either something useful for me or to ask me if I can give them a steer or a point in the direction. Um, Yeah, so so, so they're absolutely great. Yeah, fantastic, yeah.
0: Yeah, I had a a colleague and um, we went to a presentation and it was with Sam Antar, who was the CFO of the Crazy Eddie Empire in the 80s and 90s. And he's very upfront and says, "You don't know if I'm committing a crime again right now. Like, you know, who's to say that I am, or I'm not?" And my friend is like, "I dislike this guy intensely." And I was like, Mm. "If you're not willing to listen to someone who actually committed it, you're so far behind."
1: Yeah, the other thing is, you don't have to like them to learn from them any more than they have to like you to learn from you. So sometimes, you know, it's not exploitation to, you know, to, to override that and say this person's w- well worth me speaking to. And even the ones that are still um, possibly at it, they make mistakes uh, because they'll talk to people like me because they're fishing for information or to find out what I know or right. what law enforcement might know. But in the process of doing that, I like to, I like to hope I'm smart enough to not give anything away but still get stuff from them that is useful. And the other one that you know, Kelly, because you, you know these people um, as well as I do or anybody else, um, they, they they their egos get, get in the way for them. They can't stop themselves. Um, they want to tell someone. Um, and lots of stuff slips out, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 no filter.
0: Um, Well, yeah, so do you have a case that just always stays with you or like in a good way or in a bad way? Like, I mean, I have one case that the detective I worked with said it was the worst day of her career and resting this woman for embezzlement. Um, Do you have one case or maybe something that you can anonymize or talk about that you still think about?
1: Yeah, um, I've, I have got a lot of cases. Um, so uh, I, I keep get, keep trying to do um, little summaries of them. as like an investigator's case book, and I've had a few articles on websites like about fraud. We, um, but I, I tend to stick with, with funny examples. But I'll give you one which was totally unexpected, and it was an insurance company that only ever used myself and my then partner, Dave Moore, um, to if if the job was something they were too scared to do. So we get what looks like a routine investigation. And the only clue we've got is the point of the bottom, we think both you and Dave should go together on this. So you should double up rather than go on your own. And this was prior to widespread internet use. So you couldn't check people out the way. You can now with the same immediacy. Uh, The funniest thing of all was the appointment was for 6 a.m. on a Sunday, Uh, which is really strange. Um, It was in a major city. So we went down and did it. Uh, We knocked on the door. Uh, The guy who was Syrian came to the door, uh, very polite, sat us down, gave us a cup of tea and some sweets. He ran a a sweet shop uh, that specialised in various Arabic sweets and said he was going to get an interpreter for us uh, because his English wasn't good. And um, I've mentioned Syria already, so I'm not going to mention any other countries now, if I can help it. But he then took us into another room which was his lounge, and this was a really, a really sort of um, nice flat, you know, like a luxury flat or apartment uh, for for you guys across the pond. And <laughs> uh, in that room, it just looked like a um, control room. It had something like six PCs in it, with all with microphones and phones. Um, and it, it it just looked like a secret agent or listening centre. Um, and at the time, you know, this was like pe- people might have APC at home, but nobody had six. Um, just to vary from that, I once accidentally walked into um, a Libyan Secret Service control room. Oh. oh, gosh. Which, what that one said, but this just looked like it. Yeah. Uh, that was when I was on holiday in Malta <laughs> and uh, I, I walked into a fort building that I'd been to previously, not knowing the Maltese had taken, uh, sorry, the Libyans had taken it over at the time. And I just walked in to the control room and got all oh, rushed out. So anyway, we so we move into this control room and we look out the window and a limousine rolls up with a diplomatic flag. And we're now thinking, hmm. And a guy gets out of the car in full military uniform, but not UK military, um, an Arabian country military uniform, which at the time we were friendly with, but we may have fallen out with since. And he came in to act as interpreter. So the guy tells us he's the... He's basically on the run, having been a secret service agent. And to prove it to us, he opens his drawer and shows us 20 passports. Oh, my God. All with his face on it and different names. So he's proving to us that he really is a secret service agent. And we're obviously interested in a stolen car. His car has been stolen. So we're asking questions through the interpreter and um, he's telling us something and the interpreter just turns around and says, he's lying to you. Says something to him in his own language. And he comes back, he says, I've told him now to tell you, completely tell you the truth. So that was the point where he told us he was a secret service agent. He showed us the um, the passports um, and then said that he was on the death list or the assassi- assassination list for another Arabian country um, and the, an agent from another Arabian country who lived in the same block of flats was blackmailing him and had taken the car off him security until he was paid something like £15,000 blackmail fee. And he'd been frightened to do that, so he'd actually put the insurance claim in. So he hey. then he then withdrew his insurance claim for the Mercedes uh, on the grounds that it was where he was. Uh, but then to make things even easier, the interpreter um, took us to a flat of the agent from another country and made the guy hand the car over to us.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Um, And it was still... We were a couple of hundred miles away from home and all that had happened and it was about half past ten in the morning (laughs) still. So that was probably the most interesting Sunday morning I've ever had in my life. Uh, But it also tells us um expect the unexpected and maybe trust your judgment because obviously when the guy in the military uniform rolled up if if anybody phoned me and told me they were in that situation i would tell them to get out
0: yeah
1: and i didn't uh, but one had day with me and two my instincts were that this was actually a situation that i could manage and was okay um with hindsight I think if I was doing it this week, I probably would walk out. Yeah, so. Yeah, it it's a,
0: a $15,000 insurance policy is not worth it.
1: No, probably not. Having said that, from a business perspective, obviously the insurance company were absolutely cock-a-hoop. Um, so every every time they got um, a big claim, we got involved. And we had, we had another one. Uh, That was similar, but it was a a £200,000 Bentley, uh, which again, we solved. Um, But, you know, so, you know, a a similar circumstance, but but it was the same as a £200,000 Bentley.
0: So... So This Well, okay, there's a couple of things there. So first off is your hunch, which you put in that um, the number one fraud indicator is the hunch. And to replicate that via, you know, technology is the holy grail. But like the other thing that makes me think of is insurance. Everyone should have insurance. Yeah. So that's kind of like, and because it's insurance, People are like, I've paid into the system so long, I'm just getting back part of what I paid in. Yeah, absolutely. That's a whole bias.
1: Yeah, we, yeah. I mean, we've come from a strange situation whereby the fact that vehicle insurance was compulsory was actually a good thing for for, for insurers uh, because it meant that everybody had to buy insurance, therefore they got premiums, therefore they got money, they could invest, and they always made more. Uh, then they lost. But the other side is in, in times of, uh, you know, things like the cost of living crisis. Um, it means that when people are looking for, the crisis for a triangle. So, you know, uh, rationalization. I forgot the triangle now. But Pressure and opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, in, but opportunity, one of the opportunities is, I've got an insurance policy so the fact is in the uk every single driver i mean that we do have uninsured drivers but basically every every car is an opportunity right. to commit fraud um most of houses are mortgaged so they've got to have uh insurance uh, most businesses have to have employer's liability and public liability if you're buying that then you're going to insure thing so it can work not so favorably for insurers in times of Financial crisis, and I certainly know on motor motor insurance, particularly, is a real struggle for insurers. We've actually got some really big name insurers that have pulled out of doing motor insurance, even though they you know been doing it ever since there were cars, and it's a huge part of the business. Uh, but yeah, it, it provides the opportunity. Um, so, and, yeah go on. Sorry.
0: Oh, did you oh. ever watch the TV show *Leverage*? Now, it was a US show. No. Okay, you should watch at least the pilot. You gotta watch the pilot.
1: I'll make it a note now, leverage. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, because basically it's a hot a very Timothy Hutton, who I think has since been canceled. Um, uh I mean the show's been canceled, but I think he personally got canceled. <laughs> Timothy um, alright, yeah. Uh he was a high end insurance agency, and the company he worked for denied his son's um experimental insurance claims. So he became kind of Robin Hoodish. So yeah. I think you might kind of like it. And he puts together yeah. a crew and yeah. everything like that. But yeah. um yeah, it's, it's a funny one
1: like, yeah we, we found um one thing we picked up a long time ago, you know, I mentioned patterns and um, when we started doing commercial um investigations, you know, for commercial insurance policies, we quite often found that the the claim amount was the same as the premiums. <laughs> so, so they were literally just getting their own money back
0: in their <laughs> mind.
1: In their mind, even though it was, you know, so so it'd be like you know, if they'd been with the insurer for three years and they were paying twenty thousand pound a year uh, for cover, then the claim was for sixty thousand. It was one of the patterns that we actually built in to our search facility on our computer to look at the margin between the claim and the premiums paid. So very unusual things like that. Yeah.
0: Ooh. Um, that is so interesting. That's yeah. just, yeah. yeah. So, okay. We're, we're going to kind of have to, you know, end this a little bit, but, um, yeah. AI and fraud, I in investigations, I am still looking for the Holy grail of the AI investigator course. Um,
1: I'm trying to build it. I'm trying to. Seriously, I am. I've. Um, I did. Um, I mentioned to you that I did the research back in 2017, 18, and I went out and saw lots of reform fraudsters, former cyber criminals. Um, I've been doing something similar this year with by by speaking to AI experts that have actually put systems into place for large organisations like banks and everything else. I've been working with one particular expert. Uh, what I believe, the, my, my my worry with AI is that a lot of claims that people are, are using AI are actually quite superficial. You know that they've used something like ChatGPT to to do something, or they've used layer language models, um, or it isn't really the AI that we all imagine. Uh, whereas some others are using AI properly. Um, so I, I think there's a vulnerability for decision makers or those that make, um, make um, recommendations to decision makers as to what they should be asking about the AI and whether or not they can ask the right questions um, to the people that are providing the AI. Um, so it's all about how you train the AI and everything else. The fantastic thing that's irrefutable is, is just fear and faster and more efficient than it's ever been. And, you know, instead of having to go through 500 rules to come up with one piece of information, it's one look and 500 pieces of information. So there's a lot that AI can potentially do for us. And I think we're probably closer to, not we won't get all of the hunches, but I think we're closer to actually replicating the hunch than, than we have been for a, for, a, for a long, long time. My feeling for that is because of work I've done. Is um, because I'm ever ever curious. Is where I've dealt with um, with an investigation that has purely been a hunch. I don't like the look of this. When I analyse it and go through it, sometimes retrospectively, once you've actually got the full information, you know, from doing the investigation, there isn't actually a hunch. The fraud indicators were there. It's just you, you weren't able – it was your subconscious that was spotting it instead of, you, you know, your actual conscious. Um, and you didn't understand why. Or, you know, so, you know, the person reported didn't understand why it didn't look right. And these other factors as well in the um, real life. In real life, one of the reasons we get a hunch is because – so if you look at – take a claims handler, for example – they deal with lots and lots of claims. So in their subconscious, they form a pattern of what a good claim looks like. And this claim doesn't fit that pattern. And they're not sure why, uh, but it doesn't look right. So the information from good claims is as vital as the information from bad claims. And I think we sometimes get too bogged down on that. And we don't think about positive indicators. So looking I mean, the best way of looking a fraud is, first of all, is it not fraud? Is it okay? Then we start to look for, you know, for fraud and who's committed it. And I think, obviously, technology has come on a long way. And the first time I got involved with technology that did this was about 2002. And it, and it worked quite successfully, but it had limitations. Because, but mainly the limitations were um, the, the power of the computers of the day. Uh, but also the access to data. So, you know, there was a lot of unstructured data, whereas now we've got the technology to actually potentially access the unstructured data and bring that in as though it's structured data. So there's a lot we can do now that we couldn't do um, or we weren't doing, you know, five years ago. So I'm hopeful and optimistic. I don't think it's going to kill us.
0: So if I were to become a crook, which obviously I'm not yeah. going to be a crook because it would be front page news, pink collar criminal expert goes criminal. Um, yeah. The last entity I think I would ever try and rip off would be an insurance company because they have so much information. Like my insurance is I've had it for 30 years. They've got my car. They have part of my banking. They, like I I literally, I mean, I could put cameras in my house and they'd find a way that, like... That is the last entity I would ever attempt to rip off.
1: I'm not sure how it is in the US, but our insurers are a big target. Well, they've been a traditional target for a long time because they're seen as as government. It's seen as victimless crime. um, And also... Uh, they're often seen often seen as the bad guys because they put the premiums up and, and things like that. So, but you are right. Well, number one is insurance companies are actually very good at spotting fraud.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> uh, Brit- British insurers uh, have taken it seriously for a lot longer than everybody else. So, so they lead the front on that. But the other side as well, though, is you've got risk and reward and convenience. So is the fact that you've got a policy. You know, for you know, a car policy or or a household policy. So, you know, it, it kind of like the other one is that most insurers don't don't do. Sorry, I don't know whether you agree with this, but most of the fraudsters that I have spoken to thought they were going to get away with it.
0: Yeah, no, I it's well, not, I, know, not, I mean, not, mine not, think <laughs> they're going to get away with it. They think they're going to get like the pink collar criminals are going to eventually get caught, but. I think most people think they're too small for the insurance company to to bother. To bother. Yeah. My <laughs> thing is that I think the insurance companies have so many resources that there's just no point. Like I'd rather they're they're like their target is just too much.
1: Yeah, as I say, the reality is that they they're getting hit all the time. <laughs> people don't think it through, or they don't actually. They don't actually think like you, Kelly, of, well, uh, how likely am, am I going to get caught? They're just thinking, you know, um, they're just thinking short term. It's something that's available to me. They won't spot that. Why would they pick on me when they're getting so many claims? Do um, they think they're going to get away with it, I think? I think most fir- first-time fraudsters or really start fraudsters think they're going to get away with it, think they're smarter than other people, think that they thought it through, but they don't understand the work that goes on in the background once you actually put a claim in um, to just just basically create two channels. And that is the okay channel, which you pay as quickly as you can, and the not okay channel that you make sure has um, has the right level of scrutiny. But then you move on to the the career fraudsters or the repeat fraudsters. And most of the ones that I've spoken to uh, have reached a point where getting caught is inevitable to them and they accept it, you know, they know that they're going to get caught now that they've, they've gone too far. And that's quite interesting because again, the reaction to that usually is to try and make as much money as they can before they can get caught. So they become even more prolific, don't they? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I want no,
1: to... oh, sorry.
0: No, I kind of want to, I, so I love LinkedIn and you have a great LinkedIn profile. And the other thing is um, you have some great testimonials and I love this from Jenny Radcliffe, the people hacker who I've had on the show. Um, This is hers and it's a recent one. So Peter is easily one of those most experienced and professional people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. His approach to the job is analytical, but he manages to be empathetic as well. I can't recommend him highly enough. And personally I've learned so much from him to get a testimonial from Jenny like that is just—it's—it's it's not gold; it's platinum. It's even better than gold; it's platinum. So, um, I, I, and she's a people hacker.
1: Yeah, she's brilliant. Uh, yeah. You know, she's just absolutely brilliant. Anyway, and then um, to think that she's become my friend and we've actually worked together um, is something that I'm—I'm I'm really proud of. Um, I hadn't—I hadn't read it for a while, and hearing you read it out. Really does make me feel typically British and bashful. Oh, but no, that's lovely. too. Yeah, it is lovely. I am proud of that. Um, Yeah, it's. uh, But as I say, Jenny's just great, isn't she? You know, uh, she is. Well, even her, the People Hacker, the book, it's better than most spy novels. Yeah, (laughs) you start. You can't put it down, can you? If you start to read it, yeah, she's she is uh, she's a star. Yeah.
0: And and she's a one of my favorite hashtags. Never underestimate a woman, or and never underestimate Gladys. I should do never underestimate Jenny. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah so, she's great. Um. <laughs> then my last sort of question is: What did you Google before you got on the recording?
1: A uh, Google fraudish.
0: Ah, that's so <laughs> sweet. You made a post uh, about it, I, I put so, a post
1: <laughs> up about it as well. And. Um as I say, I, I I I do tune into podcasts, I do tune into networks, but I don't religiously follow any. You know, somebody will somebody I know will be on one. And um, I just don't actually have the time because my network um is so big. So I enjoyed listening um to some of the some of the podcasts, and it also gave me a flavour that we could have a, you know, the the best podcasts to me are conversational, the natural conversations. Um, I did have somebody try to give me a lecture once about how I learned, I, had, I needed to learn not to say um or more, not to say ah, and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, the way I talk is the way I talk. I bumble a little bit. Good enough for Colombo, it's good enough for me.
0: Oh, that's so funny because Colombo, I worked with a guy at a sheriff's office and he was the head of detectives and he's so Colombo and so, so good. Like, yeah.
1: I, well, you mentioned programs. I must admit, I, I did. I, I'd forgotten about Columbo, and I would say of the you know I mentioned programs like The Saint and Man in the Suitcase, Well Columbo was a program that I really, really did enjoy, and that also uh, you're probably not aware of this, or people from Manchester where I come from, we talk quite slow and deliberately, uh, whereas people in London talk quite fast. Um, so when I first started doing insurance claims investigation, I was regular, regularly going down south and into London. And because I spoke slow, some of them thought I was a bit slow, you know, as in, if if you don't speak fast, you, you mustn't be intelligent. So I used to really enjoy getting to the end and go, just one more thing. I forgot <laughs> to ask. And I would do it on a regular basis. Um and I quite enjoy, if they were frost, I'd really enjoy it because that would be the moment that their, their world fell apart, you know, where I'd say, well, if you did this and you did that, why didn't this happen? you know? And that would be the moment they say, um, you know, how do I get out of this or I don't want to go ahead um, you know uh, or you know or make admissions. Uh, but yeah, I was definitely doing my Columbo impersonation.
0: Yeah. Oh, I watched that. Yeah. With my parents growing up, I loved Columbo and also the Rockford files and yeah. So that's why I'd love, this is really funny. So I don't know how you guys do your taxes in the UK, but I do, I don't have uh cable television. I do streaming services. So like HBO yeah. or showtime and I go to do my taxes and my new accountant saw, I put, for business expenses, my streaming services. And he wrote back to me and he said, I assume you mistakenly put those as business when they should be personal. And I wrote back to him and I said, "Um, so I have a podcast and I talk about fraud and pop culture and I get a lot of it from the streaming. And I said, and I teach a course specifically on fraud and pop culture. I don't watch, like, you know, I'm sure the guy is just rolling his eyes going, there's just no way. And it's like, I don't (laughs) Charge my cable, like you know, yeah. but my streaming services—I watch billions. I, yeah, you know, there's so many things out there. So I'm sure he's just rolling his eyes.
1: Yeah, but as, well, I suppose the trouble is, that the world we live in is um, so many people are cheating the system that the yes. first assumption is that you're going to cheat cheat the systems. The, the daft thing is, people like you and I, we're just not going to do it. It's not worth it, is it? For you know, um, I mean, I claim my LinkedIn subscription you know so, yeah. for, so for like 20 odd pound a month i'm really going to cheat i'm not going to cheat for, for that and then you can say everybody's got a price but there isn't anything i don't think i can't think of anything that would make me be willing to commit yeah. fraud I'd, I'd try and find another way you know or find another way yeah. um but yeah the assumptions get made don't they well that goes down to the everyone's at it but i think uh, I'm jumping ahead here, Kelly, but you one of the questions you ask is what you know what fraud and urban myth would you disagree with? And it's that one that everyone's at it because they're not. Um, I am, I am confident there is it's a it, it's significant proportion of the population or they're very, very prolific. So it kind of when you see the fraud figures it looks like everyone's at it. Uh, The reality is most people are decent. Um, I mean, in my lifetime, I've lost my wallet five times. And every time I've got my wallet back, you know, that includes places like London. It happened to be in New York. Um, I lost my wallet in um, Chinatown in New York. and We went on somewhere else. I realized I'd lost my wallet. Uh, I immediately um, I had a, a a concierge service where I could get everything cancelled. I rang them, got everything cancelled, and then got another taxi, told the taxi guy what had happened. He went and found me the taxi cab that I'd been in, which he somehow worked out, where it was a different taxi driver in it. Uh, you know, so, so helpful. But then when I got back to the hotel, the other taxi driver had taken the wallet into the hotel for me. So, you know, so I think most people are actually decent. I mean, sometimes you get unlucky and you do get bad people. But as I say, my experience after 30-odd years of investigation is most people are actually okay, as long as you don't give them a reason not to be okay. Um, The downsides of that at the moment, cost of living crisis, um, high-level corruption, being so visible in the US, the UK, Europe, particularly, uh, but other countries as well. Um, I think that you call like uh, you've got you've got your angels that would never commit fraud. You've got your devils who would never hesitate to commit fraud, and then you've got your swingers, swinging voters, the un- the unsure in the middle. And I think that some of the unsure are being attracted over to fraud now. Which it be a whole the podcast of you know cybercrime recruitment crime as a service money mule you know there's, there's it's a lot easier to become a criminal um, than it was twenty years ago.
0: Yeah, opportunity is everywhere. But you yeah. know what? Yeah. We are going to end on that positive note that you have gotten your wallet back five times. That that is, and one time in New York. I mean, goodness yeah. gracious. So thank you so much, Peter. You guys reach out to Peter, follow him on LinkedIn. You know all the shtick. Um, And thank you again. This has been awesome.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity.